reading is taken from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. All people are sinners. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin, as the scriptures say. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we all are. And lovely to have you here. As I've said in the first service, it's always a joy to actually see you. Uh, so I hope you never get bored of me saying that, but uh, welcome. If you're visiting, lovely to see you here today. I hope uh, you'll take some time just to uh, introduce yourself to me. Uh, and if you haven't talked to me for a while, it'd be lovely to chat to you again after the service too. Uh, just before I begin, um, just someone shared with me a, a vision they're having while we're worshipping. Uh, and, and part of fellowship is um, sharing in the gifts of the Spirit, uh, things that you're prompted to by the Spirit. So hopefully I'll, I'll recall this properly. Um, the vision was of a garment of different threads, building a garment and going through the loom. Uh, and it was a vision for those who might mourn or be mourning. Okay, and the threads may look dark uh, to you at the moment, but in trusting in God and trusting in Jesus, um, He has to say to you that those those threads, which and in this time of mourning, or uh, those who have been mourning, uh, that He's turning that into a garment of beautiful colours. Okay, so if that's something that you've been struggling with in the way of mourning or grief, um, please. Take time to catch up and, and pray. Or abuse. or abuse. Thank you. Any of the uh, yeah, time of abuse or grief, please catch up and, um, and we'll have prayer afterwards too. Uh, and it reminds me of this scarlet thread, Jesus, holding all the threads together. Uh, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for your love to us. I thank you that you are more than ready to make yourself known to us. And today... As we consider your word, I pray that you may open our hearts and our minds to you to hear what you have to say to us. And Lord, may we not just listen to it once and then put it aside, but let us hear your word and act upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we've been going through the series of Paul uh, of Romans, which Paul's been... Um, Paul's written, and we have seen uh, Paul throughout chapters 2 and 3 
give pretty stinging comments to the Jewish Christians in Rome. Uh, he has told them that their lineage makes no difference. That being God's chosen people, uh, and whom through the blessing comes, gets them no closer to salvation. He has argued that all their laws and obedience doesn't count towards their salvation. And now, in this next section, he points, also points out that any good that we may try and do is absolutely useless. Well, as a 21st century church in New Zealand, we may have been able to separate ourselves a wee bit from some of the sparring argument towards the Jewish and Gentile Christians uh, at the time. Paul builds up to this passage, read to us today, and he states that the issue is universal to all. All people come under the power of sin. Not a single one of us has a power of being made right with God through anything that we can do ourselves. If you know God's word, then you know that already. Yet there seems to be an attitude, maybe a part of human nature, that makes us somehow want to find a way to make up for our wrongs, to find that one good thing we could do uh, to please God. Um, even though we know that you know, it's only through Jesus that we can be reunited with the Father. And we also need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to others uh, wishing our lives were like this. Not one of us has done anything good that would justify us before the throne of God. Again, the only way we can be saved is through believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who conquered the power of sin on the cross. And he has no hierarchy of who should be saved. We are all on equal ground. So as we go through uh, the passage of Romans today, I don't want to end up feeling depressed with ourselves with the fact that we are completely useless against sin because sin isn't the most powerful thing that we know. Jesus is. Greater is he who is living in me than he who is living in the world. So instead I want us to deliberately consider how anything we might do in the name of the Lord is from a different angle. Let's consider how we might take that on. Instead of having the attitude of what's one good thing I could do for God today, let the foremost thought be that Jesus has given us salvation from sin. Let that be our first thought of the day. And therefore, anything that we do throughout the day is an act of celebration to that victory. Uh, more often than not, I start the day with prayer and I usually start by saying, Lord, help me to be able to serve you today. Help me find one good thing I can do. Okay, just, it's my tendency to try and do that. Um, and as I've been pondering on this message, I thought, actually, why don't I try and switch it around? How about I start by actually focusing on saying, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Um, thank you for your glorious salvation. And then I say, let the things I do this day be an act of celebration for that truth. And um, in the first service, I use the call of worship from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, praise his name proclaim his salvation day after day. So the Psalms actually command us to do that. And uh, looking at the um, Psalms which Rebecca chose uh, this week, um, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Okay, the Psalm tells us to bring that forward first. And um, the next song uh, it actually started with that. My Jesus, my Saviour. So I don't know if you've ever, you're the same as me where you find you tender look at what you can do for God first in your prayers. But um, I'm going to challenge myself over the next week while I'm going to try and focus first on salvation and thanking God for that 
and then looking at the act of celebration. If you're like me, then maybe you'll um, try it out too, and, uh, and have um, catch up with me sometime and let me know how it goes. I don't know, it might just be semantics. Uh, will it make any difference? I suspect it will enable me to praise Jesus more and more throughout the day. And I wonder if I focus it in that way, whether I might find uh, a better ability to be evangelical, that I'm actually out there and able to share the message with more people rather than just doing a, a nice thing for them. I don't know, but as I say, if you want to take on that challenge, catch up with me in a couple of weeks' time. Um, as we go through the passage of Romans today, I also want to look at the encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, where this rich young ruler seems to have a very similar attitude as I was just describing, of um, looking for one more good thing to do for God. And it made me wonder whether the rich young ruler is not too dissimilar from myself, except for the rich bit, um, and, and the ruling part, and my children debate about the young part of it too, but I still feel I'm in my prime, so let's go with that, eh? Uh, but let's have a look at that um, story just to, um, just to see what we might get from that. Beginning from verse 9 in the reading from Romans. All people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. The power of sin is more than just the temptations that surround us. Okay? It's greater than our own evil intentions and attitudes. The power of sin is greater than just the personal choice we have of making, uh, deciding to follow God or not. In the act of disobedience, of Adam and Eve, the power of sin was able to create a wedge or a chasm between mankind, created in God's image, and God. And try as we might, uh, we cannot fix that separation um, by our own means and methods. Verse 10, um, Paul uses the Old Testament as his evidence to the Jewish Christians who thought that maybe they were a little closer to salvation than others. And that was not the case. They would have been familiar with these verses, and so Paul used them for his argument. And so Paul takes some verses uh, from Psalm 14. On the right we have uh, his version, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. And then on the left uh, we have from the Psalms. Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. And Paul takes the liberty of translating the word good to the word righteous to get his point across. At the very start of the um, passage there. In this passage, he wants all Christians to know that no one can stand up against as righteous due to all coming under the power of sin. Verse 11. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. And compare that to in Proverbs, where we have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And as we read through these different passages, you might find just one line that um, might capture your attention today, and you might want to explore that further down the track. Verse 12, all have turned away, all have become useless. 
If I can take the same liberty as, uh, of translating the word useless, just as Paul has done with the word good earlier on, I'll translate the word useless to all have turned away and unable to justify themselves. And that reminds me that um, just as sin has come through one man, so salvation comes through one man. Uh, and trying to explain that further is better just to um, have a look at uh, what Paul has to say. And don't tell Alistair we've jumped ahead to chapter 5, by the way. Okay, We'll, we'll take it out of this um, YouTube clip too, Roger, unless he's watching. Okay, But um, we're, jump, we're jumping ahead to chapter 5 because I think as we're reading through chapter 3, it's quite nice to see the other element, which is really important. So Paul talks about uh, this idea of uh, Adam and Christ contrasted in Romans 5. Let me read a little bit to you. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this, one, this other man, Jesus Christ. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, Adam could have taken on the intercessory role, uh, a mediator, rather than taking the fruit that Eve had taken. But instead he also fell into sin. He couldn't fulfill that role. But the good news is, Jesus Christ does. He becomes our intercessor, the mediator, the only way that the wedge or gap uh, could be overcome between man and God because of the power of sin. The second half of um, verse 12 says this. No one does good, not a single one. And it's a pivotal point in Paul's argument, and to make it easier to picture, I want us to look at the encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Okay, and you can find that um, encounter in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, three different places in, in the Gospels that you can find that. I'm going to um, take it from the book of Matthew. Uh, but there's just some little subtle differences in each of the uh, encounters. Just a little information which the different writers may give. I'm going to point out one of them today, but there are others. And, and if you're looking at finding something to read in the Bible, then hunt down all three of them and just have a read of them. The rich young ruler. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? See his, his attitude, his mindset. Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, The there is only one who is good. Sounds like Jesus has been reading his Psalms, doesn't it? Psalm 14, maybe. And Jesus says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And then the rich young ruler has this peculiar question. Keep the commandments. Which ones? I think there's ten, probably, which we might need to keep. <laughs> um, but Jesus doesn't just you know, tell him, well, there's all ten commandments. He actually meets them at his level. He's asking which ones uh, should he keep. So Jesus starts with some. And he says this. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. 
honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Did you notice the commandments that Jesus selected? All the ones that are relational between us and other people. Okay, so those last second half of the commandments are the ones which um, are what we do to, do to others or how we relate to others too. Because he knows this man's heart. And maybe this rich young ruler uh, was well known and well liked by the people around him. Maybe even the disciples knew him and respected him. They might have said, hey, here comes that rich young ruler. Boy, he's a nice guy. Looks after his parents, treats his servants really nicely. He's certainly not the type who'd rip you off, and he hasn't killed anyone today. Jesus is going to like him. In fact, Jesus does. He does like this guy. Because in the retelling of this encounter in the Gospel of Mark, um, after that point in the story, what do I still lack, the young man says, it says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know, no matter what we th you think you're like, even though you don't get it right and we can't earn our salvation, when we feel like our life is a mess and we've mucked up again and again, but we decide to do our very best for Jesus, to trust in him, he looks at you and he loves you. Don't forget that. When we're just longing to do somehow be closer to God again, he is there ready to embrace us. Jesus then sums up the first four commandments uh, in what he tells the man next. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, if you want salvation, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The way to the Father and to eternal life can only be through the Son. And there's an indication from the reaction from this really nice guy that there were some things that he was putting above the one true God. For when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This rich young ruler was looking for one more good thing to make himself righteous, to earn his way into salvation rather than putting aside himself and following the way to salvation. Then Jesus says to his disciples, he says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were generally astonished. Uh, and they're greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus sums this up very nicely. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this is what Paul is driving towards in his argument. No one's righteous. No one can justify their right to eternal life by anything we might do. It is impossible for mankind to bridge the gap between us and God. Only God can do that. And he did by giving Jesus Christ his own son to die in our place. And in doing so, conquering sin's most, most lethal weapon, death. Going back to the um, Romans passage. Verses 13 and 14. Paul selects some of David's psalms, other psalms, 
which uh, focus on what um, those who are against God say. And so it focuses on our tongues, our voices. Uh, verse 13 and 14, the talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, and if you're pondering on any of these um, references, you might take time during the week to look at that and then look at um, the book of James in chapter 3. We could uh, consider about where it talks about the controlling of the tongue. James 3.10 says, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Paul then moves on to the evil actions that often follow such speaking with references from the book of Isaiah. Verse 15, they rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. That um, one line, verse 17, they don't know where to find peace, um, struck me. Uh, and again, in, in some of the songs we sing in the first service, it was talking about the true peace. Uh, I was listening to a message recently that also hinted about how there seems to be this lack of ability to find peace in society today. Uh, even in Christian circles it can be hard. And it was suggested that it could be due to our pride, uh, our hatred, our jealousy, um, and the fact that we don't forgive each other. So thinking about uh, those passages from Romans, and not being able to find that peace, are there things getting in the way from us being able to find that perfect peace? Verse 18, they have no fear of God at all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which we find in Proverbs, so we can again look at other verses, consider that. Now one thing I really wish I could see in the media and the news today, uh, I just long to see this, is having a leader of the nation Pray for this nation on, on TV or wherever it might be. Boy, I wish that would happen. Uh, but like Hezekiah in, in the Old Testament, when the Assyrian army are out there and they're taunting them and threatening them and all that, he brings a letter and he brings it to the temple and puts it in front of God and says, here are the threats, here are all my anxieties, Lord, come and, and save us. I really long to see that happen again, someone, a leader, to do that. Um, but it also implies that we have a very important role. You know, I was encouraging the first service where they do a slot of intercessory prayer every week. Uh, and boy, that is important. And it's important for us to pray here together as a family of God and pray with one another any time we can to intercess for, um, for the world, for our nation. And then we conclude with the purpose of the law. In verses 19 and 20. Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. And to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing the law what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law reveals the power of sin. It makes all realise that we cannot keep it, no matter how hard we try. More so, it reveals we cannot be made righteous by our own means. So what can we make of all this? Let me ask a question, just as Paul does in his uh, series and his uh, passages. I'll try and make it sound a bit like Paul. Um, have a listen to this. 
Well, what then? Should we conclude that any good thing we try to do is useless? That there is no reason for us to try and please God by attempting to do good? No, by all means, let us continue to strive to please God and to do good. But what if we were to reverse our common attitude in why we do such things, just like the rich young ruler was asked to do? Instead of looking at one more good thing that we might be able to do to please God, let's treat every action we do, every offering, every deliberate attempt of doing good as an act of celebration, because we are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if, if the shepherd who finds that one lost sheep out of all his hundred uh, is ready to celebrate, if the widow who finds that one lost coin out of her ten is ready to celebrate, if the father who sees his prodigal son returning to him is ready to do a big celebration, if we're told that the angels in heaven are celebrating every time someone turns back to God, then surely let every um, act we do is a chance to rejoice and celebrate for our salvation, for being saved. Let every action, every word, every breath be an act of celebration to the fact that Jesus has conquered over our sin, over the penalty of sin, which is death. And that anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, young or old, who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, is saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for calling us where we were and, and bringing uh, eternal life, which can only be found in you. Lord, we long to serve you. We long that each day anything we might say or do or even think will be an act of celebration to you. Praise be your name. In Jesus' name, amen.